with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland, podcaster extraordinaire with How Stuff Works. And as you guys know, I loves me some technologies. And that's what I like to cover on this show. And in the past, I've covered concepts like Moore's Law, and that can tend to lead people into thinking that because computer processing power effectively doubles every two years or so, that the entire world is going to be transformed into a crazy techno-wizard world that you'd see in an imaginative science fiction film. It's going to happen any day now, and we're all headed that way. It's a foregone conclusion. However, from a day-to-day perspective, it doesn't seem like we're going all that quickly, despite that amazing progress in computer processing power. And one of the reasons, there are many, but one of the reasons for this is that while computer processing power tends to follow that pathway that Gordon Moore observed several decades ago, other aspects of technology aren't on quite as predictable a path, nor do they advance at such a reliable accelerated rate. And because of that, because some aspects of technology lag behind the development of processing power, we don't get that crazy future that we've been promised since, say, the 1950s. Now, one of those aspects, one of the things that does not evolve as quickly as processing power would be user interfaces. Now, these are the ways that we interact with our devices, such as our computers. So the typical computer user... They're usually relying upon your basic keyboard and mouse combination. It's the same thing that's been in place since the 1980s in personal computers. Xerox PARC was introducing things like the mouse and the graphic user interface much earlier than that, but it was really the Apple Macintosh that brought the graphic user interface and the mouse along with the keyboard to the personal computing space. The keyboard, of course, had already existed. Uh, there's a problem with this type of interface. There's actually a couple. One is that it requires users to be both able to manipulate the input devices, which would be the keyboard and mouse. You have to actually be able to move them in order to interact with your computer. And the other problem is that there's a learning curve. You actually have to learn how to use those devices in order to interact with your computer properly. It's not a natural way to interact with a machine or with anything else. It's not the way we tend to interact with the stuff in our everyday world. We don't have to type out codes or move a random part of an object in order to make something else move. We are much more direct with our input uh, whenever we are interacting with our environment. So in order to learn how to use a computer, we actually have to go through this process of learning how keyboards and computer Mises work. Otherwise, nothing much gets done. Now, that's not to say that once the keyboard and mouse combo came out, we stopped trying to find ways to interact with technology because engineers have been working on everything from light pens to touch screens to gesture controls to voice commands all the way back to when the keyboard and mouse started to become a thing. And this is all in an effort to broaden the way we control computers and electronics. And I've covered some of those technologies in earlier episodes of Tech Stuff, and I've explained that many of them, like voice recognition, do not follow a path that's nearly as accelerated as processing power. We've gotten really good with voice recognition over the last, say, five or six years, 
but for many years, it was lagging behind other technologies. And this is the problem with making those big promises about what the future is going to be like. Often that is based on an assumption that everything is moving forward at the same speed. And that's just not true. Well, today I wanted to cover a specific type of technology that can be used in user interfaces, although that's only one application of this technology, and that is eye-tracking technology. A bit later in this episode, I'm going to play an interview I had with Oscar Werner of Toby Tech. And Toby Tech is a business unit of a company, Toby, that is pioneering eye-tracking technology for all sorts of applications, both on the business-to-business side and the business-to-consumer side. But before I get to that interview, I thought it might be interesting to talk about the evolution of eye-tracking in general, because it's actually a really cool story, and you, I learned stuff I just didn't know, including stuff that skeeved me out a little bit. So I want to share my skeeviness with you. Wait, no, that's not right. I want to share the stuff that skeeved me out with you. My skeeviness is a matter for my own personal life. Back off. All right, to begin with, eye-tracking technology is the product of a few different disciplines, and they originate from different perspectives. You've got philosophical approaches, you have technical approaches, you have biological approaches, and you also have human behavior along with psychology and physiology. So in the 18th century, which I feel I need to point out, was an era that had very few personal computers in it because they had not yet been invented. There was a guy named William Porterfield who should not be confused with the professional cricket player from Ireland. Totally different person. This was William Porterfield in the 18th century, an Englishman who made some general notes about oculomotor behavior and reading. In other words, how our eyes behave as we read text. Now, Porterfield's work was not based off empirical evidence, but rather casual observations and some hypotheses. But later scientists would study this behavior in greater detail and with more rigorous scientific approaches. So some of them looked at it from a physiological standpoint. Some looked at it from a philosophical standpoint. Some of them combined the two. And a man named Louis-Emile Javal conducted a study of how our eyes behave when we read text. He was working in the late 19th century, around the 1860s and 1870s. He published his work about this in 1878, and he made his observations by directly watching people's eyes as they read lines of text. And he saw that when you do that, your eyes don't just glide seamlessly across a page. Instead, your eyes have lots of stops and starts. Those motions, he gave names. So he called every time you stopped when you would, your eyes would pause as they went across. He called those fixations. And he would call all the bits where your eyes would move across rapidly, uh, saccades. Uh, those would be the starts. Now, saccade comes from a French word that was originally used to describe horse movements. And a rough translation into English might be jerk, as in the motion, not as in some jerk face who's giving you a hard time. So Javal's work was interesting in that, for the most part, the only studies in oculomotor function 
up to that time were limited to diagnosing and perhaps treating dysfunction. So the work wasn't all about learning more of what typical behavior is like. In other words, doctors normally didn't think to look into the way our eyes move unless something atypical was going on with the patient. Javal started a movement in medicine and biology that, pardon the pun, shifted the focus. Other scientists observed similar oculomotor behavior. So this was all emerging around the same time. There were actually quite a few people who were looking into it, so to speak. Javal just became the most famous of all those people. So I don't mean to suggest he was the only one, but rather he's the one that gets most of the credit. And that is because of another person named Edmund Huey, who was a clever fellow from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He made more progress in this study by creating an invention that sounds like it came straight out of a clockwork orange. It consisted of a plaster eye cup that would fit over a subject's eye. So it would go right up against the person's eye, and the cup had a lever attached to it that went off to the side. At the other end of the lever, there was a pen, and the pen could move across a rotating smoked drum, and thus the pen would make marks across the smoked surface of this drum that rotated around. And the idea was that this would allow you to look at those marks and map that to eye movements that are happening while you're actually giving the subject a test. So as the subject's eyes would scan text, the movements of those eyes would make the plaster cup move, which would transfer that motion to the lever and ultimately to the pen that was resting against the rotating drum. And this sounds absolutely ghastly to me. But it gave valuable information to Huey about how people's eyes move when they're reading. Now, in his papers on the subject, Huey would refer back to Javal's work and his research on the physiology of reading. There were other scientists who were looking into the subject as well, but Huey's work and the citation of Javal have led many to simplify history and just say they're the ones responsible for the research on eye movements in the early days. Later on, another scientist, George Malcolm Stratton, would start to study how we move our eyes as we perceive illusions. Now, this is really interesting. Optical illusions depend upon our eyes perceiving something that is either not there or is there in a way that is different from the actual physical thing that we are perceiving. And therefore, the way our eyes behave is very important to how those illusions work. What is it that's going on physiologically with our eyes? How much of that is dependent upon eye behavior versus what's going on in our brains? This would slowly lead scientists to the conclusion that our eyes are really an extension of our brains and that the process of thinking is very closely, if not synonymously connected with the process of seeing. And I think that's pretty cool too. Stratton's work would publish in the early 20th century and also help inform scientists and others about the nature of our eyes. All of this is to say these early studies began to coalesce around that concept of not just how our eyes move as we perceive, but also where our focus tends to be directed. Knowing about focus is important for lots of different fields, some of which appear to be completely independent of technology and user interfaces. For example, let's say that you are a graphics designer 
and you have a job. You're given a contract and your job is to create a sign that will warn people to potential danger. Maybe it's a warning sign for, let's say, radioactive material. And you want to make sure you get across to people that anything beyond that sign could pose as a threat to that person's health. There are many things you would have to consider before you start making that sign. For example, which colors should you use? You're going to want something that's going to have a good level of contrast so that whatever the message is that you're trying to convey will be easy for people to perceive, even if people might have some form of color blindness. Then you have to ask, all right, well, if there are any words on there, what typeface should you use? I mean, it needs to be easily legible. And where do you draw the focus on this sign so that the message you are sending gets to your audience and they actually get the point? Being able to track eye movement gives us more information about how we humans work, not just how we can interact with stuff. As for eye tracking technology, it thankfully evolved beyond the need for eye cups and mechanical levers. Otherwise, I would just be running around screaming inside of this studio because I have a thing about eyes. But one methodology still relied on the subject wearing special equipment, and it was a system consisting of a pair of contact lenses with a sort of special feature, which is dependent upon the actual implementation of the technology. Some versions would use contact lenses that had a magnetic field sensor connected to them, or they might have an embedded mirror that would reflect light, and then you would have an external system that is partnered with these contact lenses, and that would help monitor the movement of the special component of those contact lenses. In turn, that would track eye motion. This typically would provide a really accurate indication of what the eye is doing at any given time, assuming that the contact lens fits properly and doesn't itself slide a bit across the surface of the eye. Obviously, if that happens, then it's messing up your metrics because you're looking at the movement of the contact lens, not necessarily the movement of the eye itself. But for something like a computer or a mobile device that a consumer might purchase and you want an interface for that, you probably don't want to deal with putting in special contacts. So the interfaces that we're finding with personal electronics and computers typically rely upon optical tracking. And that means exactly what you think it means. You're using some form of camera to monitor where you are looking. The, the device uses cameras that can detect your eyes using software that has image recognition algorithms running in it. So it's looking for different aspects of eyes that are common across many people. And once it identifies, all right, that's an eye, then it starts to try and track where the eye is looking. Typically... You have to end up uh, using a, a system to set a baseline for this. You can't just turn it on and start looking. You have to calibrate it. So you calibrate the system so it knows where you're looking. It might guide you into looking at specific regions of a screen, whether it's a mobile device or a computer or whatever it might be. And that way, once it knows, quote unquote, that you are looking where you're supposed to, it can then... Uh, interpret where your eye is looking from that point forward because it's calibrated from a known set of standards. And from that point forward, assuming that everything's working properly, every time you look at some other part of the screen, the eye tracking software can track your gaze and know exactly where you are looking. 
that's the basic idea behind it. Now, when we listen to in on an interview in just a few minutes, Mr. Werner will explain how Toby's technology accomplishes this in particular. They have a specific kind of approach to using cameras to track eye movements. It's not that different from the way motion sensors like the Microsoft Connect work, only obviously eye tracking technology is more precisely tuned to look at the movement of your eyeballs, not your overall body. Now, this technology allows for all sorts of potential applications, and some of them are passive, which means that people can use the eye tracking data to get an idea of where people direct their focus for any given situation. So that might be when someone is looking at an advertisement or looking at a web page or playing a game. It can be more active. It doesn't have to be a passive implementation. It can allow people the chance to send input into a computer by staring at specific parts of a screen. This is useful for those people who may otherwise be unable to move. They can use these kind of interfaces in order to communicate. And there are countless other applications that exist now and even more that we haven't even thought of yet. To get a better idea of what this tech is all about and how it might be used in the future, I talked with Oscar Werner. He's the business unit president of Toby Tech. And we'll hear that interview right after we take this quick break to thank our sponsor. Let's start by you uh, introducing yourself and your title and the company. So my name is Oscar Warner. I'm president of Toby Tech, um, and Toby Tech is basically one of three business units in Toby, um, in Toby Group. Um, so um, Toby, uh, there are three business units. Uh, Toby Dynavox is providing uh, solutions for people with disabilities, someone with ALS who cannot move any, who, who cannot um, um, move at all, um, can basically communicate via looking at a computer or send emails via just looking at a computer. Or somebody with CP who is spastic can type emails and write on a thesis or, 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 or uh, write on a computer and use a computer just with their eyes. And then it's Toby, uh, Toby Pro, uh, which is focusing on selling um, research people uh, solutions to, to universities and to um, uh, companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever to understand human behavior. Mm-hmm. And then it's Toby Tech, who is the developer of all the core eye tracking technology and is selling this to the consumer markets, which may be PC gaming, the PC industry, smartphone industry, VR, AR industry. So selling to the big, big OEMs, um, of which you know uh, pretty much all the names. Right. So let's start just by kind of explaining what eye track tracking technology does in general. So without getting into the mechanics of it, what exactly is its purpose uh, as far as, as a technology goes? So eye tracking does two things. Um, um, it basically makes technology understand you as a human being. And it does that in, in two different ways. You know, the first one is what we normally call insight. It makes uh, devices know what you're paying attention to. And when you think about it, what you're paying attention to is your interest or your intent at that given point in time. So a computer with eye tracking know what your intention is. Um, um, when you think about it is if, if you think on you're in front of a computer, you're looking at an icon 
that you want to click on, the first thing you do is you look at it. Second thing you do is you take your mouse and drag the mouse pointer over it. And the third thing you do is you click on your mouse or on your touchpad or on your controller or whatever. But an, an, a computer with an eye tracker already know that you're looking at something. So that it knows what you want to click on before you touch your mouse. So that could come in really handy for anyone who's mm-hmm. designing something to have a, a process where you run the test and you have eye tracking technology. You can see what elements of your design are actually working or maybe are distracting to your, yeah. to your uh, potential user. Yes, that is exactly what Toby Pro, that their entire business model is, is centered around that. For example, you know, they're creating glasses, eye tracking a set of glasses, and they send a test group through a store, a retail store. And then big retail companies such as Procter & Gamble or Unilever, they would test the store layout and see what package did I look at? What package did I not see? And how do I, re- how do I reconfigure the store layout? It can also be done on websites or pack research, etc. But yes. Excellent. And it can also be used not just to see where our uh, attention is, but it can go a step further and become a direct interface with uh, some other technology. For example, you can use it so that you are creating an action. You're removing that need to move and click, correct? Yeah. Yes. So the first thing, the first category is just it gives computers or it gives devices insight of what you're looking at. If you're in front of the computer, are you focusing on the screen? Are you leaving the screen? What you saw, what you did not see, it can be presence and identity and all these things. It gives you that. It gives you a lot of knowledge about, about the human. And the second thing is you can use it for interaction. Like take an example from VR, for example. If you um, imagine you pick up something in, something in your hand and you want to throw it. Um, and if, if you do this, you throw it, aim at the place in your room, you want to throw it. When you as a human aim at that place, you are looking at the place with your eyes and then you give the command to your body to throw the thing with your hand. But the VR headset, in order to tell where you want to throw the object, you either need to point at the area you want to throw it with your forehead or you need to point at the area you want to throw it with your hand or do a gesture. And that's very, very hard to get exact, basically. So this is kind of replicating the human behavior. When you pick up a, pick up something and want to throw at something, you look at the point you want to throw at, and that's how you do your aim. And headsets with eye tracking would suddenly understand your intention. They would understand what you are trying to hit because you're looking at that point. So those devices are much smarter, and we give developers the freedom to use that. And it removes that barrier from a user perspective that – uh, anytime you have any kind of interface with a machine, the more levels of of uh, abstraction that there are between you and what you're trying to do, the more there's a learning curve, right? That you have to yeah. actually train yourself how to use that device so that the device does what you want it to yeah. do. Whereas this is kind of stripping that away quite a bit. We're trying to make it. We're trying to make it natural. That is exactly how you behave in the real world. You want to throw an object at something, you pick it up, you look, that's how you aim, and then you throw. While in VR, you would have to do something else. So so we're trying to make it as natural. Yeah, so what we think, when you think about what devices are as of today, devices have 
and I'm talking about devices, it could be VR, AR, or smartphones, or computers, but they, they, they know if you push the buttons or push them right. They listen to you because they have Cortana or they have uh, diff- different types of uh, voice input or, and microphones. They know uh, where you are because they may have a GPS. They know if you turn them around because they have a gyro, etc. So they know all these things, but they have no concept, no idea of, of the human in front of them. They don't know if there is, if there is anyone in front of them. So we typically say the devices as of today are blind. They can listen, they can feel, they know where they are, they know in what direction they are, but they are blind. They have no concept of who is in front of them and what is that person doing and, and, and where is that person looking? What is that person's intention? We think that in the, in the world of AI, you know, trying to create machines that understands use humans, we think that's kind of actually crazy. Um, um, it is. I would. I would probably argue pretty strongly for that. It is equally or more important to know what is your, what is my user's intention. What are they interested in at every given point in time, and knowing if they are in front of the computer, as knowing where they are or in what direction um, uh, uh, the, the laptop or, or, or smartphone is turned. Interesting. So, with this this philosophy, this and this general approach, this idea of teaching machines how we humans pay attention, you know, looking for the signs that show that we are, in fact, focusing upon any given aspect. What is the actual technological component that allows these machines to do that? I imagine that we're talking about a hardware side with a camera and then obviously a software side that's processing that information and making meaning out of it. Yeah, I mean the, the core components of an of an eye tracking system. It's it's a it's a camera, a near infrared camera, and um, it's a set of illuminators that can uh, that, that projects a light pattern on your eyes, and then this camera takes the pictures with this light pattern. Then you send these pictures, the picture stream, onto some time form of processing units where there is a set of algorithms that can calculate um, either where you're looking or you can do face ID on the same camera, so who you are, or it can calculate what direction your head is. It can detect your facial features. Are you happy? Are you sad? It can detect your drowsiness. Are you awake or are you sleeping? So you can do a lot of different things with those pictures. And then the third component, it's kind of the camera, the algorithms, and then it's the use case. So what do you do with the knowledge of that you're looking here? That's kind of built into the use case. Mm-hmm. And what do you do with the knowledge that you know the identity of this person? Um, so it might be something in the case of authentication where you're looking at a person's ID, their their facial structure, similar to what we saw with the uh, the reveal of the new iPhone handsets that are coming out. They're using a face ID technology for that sort of thing, authentication. But it could it could also be control systems, whether it's in a game or, as you had mentioned earlier, for people who have uh, – mobility disabilities that they aren't able to move they're able to perhaps use their eyes to focus on specific icons and thus communicate using eye tracking software to indicate what their intent is yeah so you see a big trend in in consumer electronics right now if i mean the the iphone is is is, is just one of them they're entering because they want to make their devices smarter and understand the users better they enter um, 
special user-facing cameras, near-infrared cameras, which can understand their users more. And that is exactly what iPhone did. I mean, iPhone's quote in, in one of the newspapers or, or articles I read was, what can be more natural than touch? Well, just a look. So iPhone is rec- or Apple is recognizing that, hey, yeah, we're using the touch interface today, but if I really want to understand my user, I need to understand what the user is, what the user is doing in front of the device. That's why they implemented, you know, Face ID. Sure. In the phone. Um, and that's why, I mean, uh, Huawei, we did a phone with Huawei uh, around about a year ago, which had a similar type, of te- similar type of camera, which could do various features as well and understand you as a user, are you in front of it? Then the screen didn't lit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same thing that is happening with eye tracking. It is the same thing which is happening in the automotive industry where you have user-facing cameras to detect drowsiness. It's the same thing that is happening in, in, in VR where a lot of people are, are looking into eye tracking cameras or, or user facing cameras in, 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 the, in, in the headset. So it's a, it's a general trend, basically. And I had a chance to experience this in, many years ago. In fact, I think it was a booth at CES, and I think it was a Toby booth, if I'm not mistaken, where I sat down and got a general demo of the eye tracking technology at the time there was an application. It was a game, essentially, sort of like the old game of Asteroids, where you would focus on items on the screen and wherever your focus was, that's where the the quote-unquote firing of the 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 asteroid destroying laser or whatever it was would focus and it was a great little demo showing the promise of it i imagine that as all technologies do this has evolved to become much more accurate and precise over time yes so that's obviously one of our core challenges and tasks is to improve the accuracy and precision but it's also to make it work consistently for the entire population in all different conditions. Uh, that is what is hard with an eye tracker. Making an eye tracker that works for one person is pretty easy, but making one pr- an eye tracker that works the same way for everyone is pretty hard. Mm. Um, you can compare that with voice recognition. I mean, making an, 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 a voice recognition system that, that recognizes your voice is pretty okay or pretty easy, but make it, to do with it for the entire human race in all different conditions with all different background sounds, that's pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the challenge and that's, that's what we are um, ultimately the leader in the world on. So you're, yeah. you're looking at the separating all the, uh, the signal from the noise, making sure that on any, I mean, I, I sit there and I just think about all the different cases where I'm using my computer. I mean, even if it were just a laptop implementation, uh, you know, Keeping all the others aside, uh, just the laptop alone, there are times where I'm at my desk. There are times where I'm sitting at a couch or in another environment. There are different lighting conditions. There are different angles. Um, I imagine that that for most of these, there's probably some sort of uh, uh, training or orientation uh, segment where it allows you to to at least set that baseline for eye tracking for uh, to make sure that you know you're getting a good response early on. But yeah, as as you point out, if you're rolling out a technology that's going to go to a wide consumer market, then uh, that challenge is is non trivial. You have something that needs to work out of the box for 
an enormous, uh, really an endless variety of people in, in an almost equally endless variety of situations. So, um, these days, you, you've mentioned some of the, the tools. One of the things I was really interested in was this user interface with computers, uh, specifically, but I mean, obviously all the different, uh, uses of eye tracking are, are fascinating to me. Um, one of the things I was really kind of interested in is the, uh, implementation, uh, in the sense of how it works for, uh, in, in the pro gaming industry. We've been looking at that recently, and um, I think it's really cool to have a new tool to analyze the way people who can play at a professional level, how you know where their attention is, and is it different from people who play at uh, a, a regular gaming level? Like someone like me, uh, I, I consider myself a bullet sponge when it comes to games. <laughs> I'm I'm the one that people practice on. Uh, <laughs> You're good at that. Yeah, no, I'm great at doing that. I'm, I'm, if you have a, if you have a, a healer on your team who needs practice, I'm the guy who's going to be giving that guy lots of work. Right. Uh, but, uh, I, I'm curious, like, how have you seen this rolled out and implemented? Have, have there been any, uh, things in that implementation that have surprised you or any interesting stories through that process? I mean, this, this entire story is based on what we do in, in, in what we have done many, many years in various business units. And that's based on the notion that what you look at is a good approximation of what you think, because mm-hmm. that is your intention. So uh, the entire concept is, is pretty straightforward in that. And, and when, you, when you think about that, you can, if, I mean, a pro gamer where that person spends his or her attention is extremely precious i mean they have so many different impressions coming at them at the same time and they need to select and they need to be very good at uh, making sure they per- perceive the right things mm-hmm. making sure they spend their time on the right things otherwise they will get, they will get killed um so and the concept is pretty much you know linked to that so for example a pro gamer may um know that they need to regularly check check the minimap yeah. You know, how many how many times a minute does a pro gamer check the minimap? You're going to see them continuously going down there and checking what's happening, while a less, uh, you know, a, a less good gamer may focus too much on the game. Mm-hmm. You can you can you can check that out and see how many times are you actually checking the minimap. Or you can see pro gamers are also before he's attacking, checking the enemy items, you know, you know, what type of skills or what type of weapons or what type of you know skills does, does the opponent have? Right. You, know, you can see that a less less good gamer may not do that. Yeah, you can also go into different players player styles. Now, when you are a certain player style, you may have a different gaze pattern than you are a, a another player style because you need you need to do that differently. Or you can see things like uh, keyboard combination. I mean, you know, as a, as a really good gamer, you know, you need to learn all your keyboard combinations by heart. You need to do that. Um, um, and that's going to be, and by doing that, you can spend all your time focusing on the focusing on the screen. While less good gamers, they will not be, they will not know all the keyboard combinations. They will be focusing off screen for a certain percentage of the time. You can notice that, so you can kind of see, hey, you need to practice your keyboard combinations because you're off screen 30% of the time, or 20%, or 10%, or whatever it is, you know. Um, so it's 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 things like that that you can notice. Um, 
that can make you become a better gamer. If you study, this is my favorite gamer. This is how they behave. I see how they are playing and what their intent is. Then you can learn from that. You may not have the same player style, but you can learn from that and practice on certain certain events. Yeah, it might even just teach you what parts of the game you don't need to worry about because those are purely environmental and have no no direct impact on whether or not there's an opponent. And therefore, you don't waste time looking at something that is not a, a threat. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And you can see that just in, 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 in a game uh, where somebody's playing with eye tracking, they can turn on what we call a gaze overlay. And then where they're looking, you will get the kind of transparent little you know, blob if the streamer wants you to see that. So they can turn that on. And then you, as a, as a viewer, get a much richer experience because you, you can suddenly understand that, all right, I know not only where the, per, where, where, the, where the pro is clicking, but I also know where he's spending his, his attention. So I kind of can anticipate his next move because I can see a little bit how he thinks. Interesting. And that, and that will make you anticipate his next move and make you understand his gameplay better. And therefore, you can follow his game and therefore learn more. So just by looking how they scan off the environment, you can kind of follow how the pro is, how the pro is perceiving and, and, and playing the game, which is incredibly you know, useful for you as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a game that want to improve. Yeah, this kind of, as a parallel, this reminds me a lot, actually, of poker tournaments that are televised where you get a chance to see what the cards are of any particular player, which then lets you understand more about the decisions the players are making as the game unfolds. This is kind of the the equivalent to that. You're not just watching the game happen. You're actually seeing how the person playing it is, you know, what what they are perceiving and what is important to them and that's why they make the decisions they make so now you're not just seeing their decisions but you see why those decisions are happening exactly i mean you, t- you can take it to the to the you know real world the poker world if you're you know, sitting around the you know real physical table then you the really good poker players well they would of course be looking at the cards but they would probably spend a, a very large portion of the time watching their opponents mm-hmm. if you had eye tracking on them you could actually see what are they focusing on what parts of the player are they focusing on and when, you know, and how do they, you know, so that you can see what is it that they're focusing on and what are the interesting areas. Mm-hmm. As a non-pro gamer, you would probably learn immensely by knowing, all right, I should not focus so much on my own cards. I should focus on the opponents X percent of the time. And then this is what the pros are actually looking at. He, look, he's, li- he's looking at if... Pl- Player A is looking at player B and seeing if player B is blinking. And if he's blinking, he's kind of folding or, or doubling. Yeah. So, because that is the cue. Yeah, that's... So, and, and it's, you know... That's incredible. It's it, it's, that, it's blowing my mind to even think about that possibility because we know that people who perform at that, at that professional level, at that level that is above, like a, sometimes a huge leap above what we would consider a good player... There are these these components and people always talk about tells and they talk about the psychology of the game. But that's stuff that is really difficult to learn unless you are pouring hundreds of hours of experience in. To be able to see something like this where you can get that direct feedback of, oh, well, I understand conceptually what they're doing. Now I can actually see how they are doing it. 
even though I would argue it would still take you many hours to to get a level of proficiency there, you would at least have a place to start. Yep, exactly. That's fascinating. Or you, I mean, but, but you can take this also to, I mean, you can take this to the real sports world. I mean, you have race, Formula One race car drivers um, or NASCAR drivers who are using eye tracking in their helmets in order to see, record where they are in practice now, where they are looking and when they take the turns. Because one of the most important things when they take a turn is to have the right kind of direction of your eye, right kind of focus points. And they're kind of learning from the really good drivers to the less good drivers, where is the focus point in the turn? So because they can see, right, the good drivers are behaving like this. This is their focus point. You know, you should change. You're focusing on the wrong, wrong direction. So it's kind of it's it's in the physical world as well. To I mean, you can see the poker examples very easy, and then you can obviously see the 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 the, the, the computer game example as well. So this is a two way street, right? We're talking about in one side of things, having a new approach, relatively new. I mean, eye tracking has been around for a while, but to see the the technology mature to a point where it's rolling out more uh, more consistently in consumer market stuff, yep. uh, we, we see a new user interface approach. Yep. But on the other yep. side, we're seeing a way of learning more about ourselves. And so it's really cool. It's technology that you can take advantage of as a developer to create a new way to interact with a product or whether it's hardware or software. And then on the flip side, from a psychology standpoint, you can learn more about human behavior. You can learn more about human behavior at extremes, such Mm -hmm. as the extreme level of performance with professional gamers and that kind of thing. Um, So to me, this is an amazing technology, not just for the potential of what I can do with it, but what Ultimately, we can learn about ourselves and thus design even better stuff another generation or two generations down the line. Yeah, I mean, imagine just a computer developer. If they could see, if they take a sample of a thousand gamers, uh, users of their game, and they would know on what object, what what are these guys or girls seeing in the user interface and what are they not seeing? All right, they're not noticing. I mean, they're not clicking on this thing. They see it, but they turn away because because they're not interested in it or they're just missing this thing you know how what what cues can you give to users if you know what they have what they have seen you don't need to you know have a second reminder of of something that somebody has seen seen, seen already so you can improve the user interface immensely obviously by the stuff of the ground yeah Right. And of course, today, now that we're in a world where people have persistent Internet connections, it allows you to roll out uh, uh, tweaks. You can roll out versions and patches on a very frequent basis. This allows for incredible flexibility if you are trying to create something that is software based and you are getting real time feedback due to the eye tracking data about what is and isn't working or what is or isn't con- necessarily considered uh, worthy of focus and either redesign it so that something that you think is important can have a better sense of prominence in the eyes of the people using it or you just eliminate it. If no one's looking there and it's taking up land landscape, you might just get rid of that entirely if no one really is using it. It's uh, to me, it's like a, another leap forward uh, where we saw advertising go once the Internet became a real entity. Because, of course, in the old days, 
advertising was limited to uh, print and radio and television uh, campaigns. And you had a sense of how well your ad campaign was going based upon sales, but it was really hard to nail down whether or not that was actual causation, right? Because maybe it was because the ad campaign or maybe there was some incredible sale that really helped boost sales. Uh, But then the internet comes along and that gives a much more direct feedback loop of what ads are, are encouraging people to click through and therefore experience it on a deeper level. This is like that, except it can apply to everything, not just advertising, but everything. Yeah. So that's, that's what I mean when, when I say eye tracking gives understanding of your intent and how important is intent to any, any, any computing device. Mm -hmm. I mean, intent is, is probably the most important currency that you have, you know, your, your, your kind of intent and your interest and your attention. I mean, that is the most, the attention of the of, of humans is the most pressured, pressure, precious, precious resource you have, right? Mm-hmm. But then you need to understand that, all right, you can never share eye tracking data if the user doesn't want it. Sure. I mean, it's it's the user that controls it, so you so there is no kind of possibility to spy. It's like you as a user, you control if you want to give this to a corporation or if you don't, basically, like anything else. Yeah, so that's, that's super, super. That's super, super important, obviously. Absolutely, yes. You wouldn't. If you're volunteering it, that's one thing. But if you just found out, oh, gosh, uh, Facebook implemented this technology and now they know everywhere I look and now my feed is being filled with puppies and I like puppies, but I really would like other things besides puppies. Uh, I mean, obviously, we see that sort of analysis in all areas of technology that are going on just based upon our actual physical behaviors, our choices made, like whether we're following one link versus another link. But I think a lot of people would really, uh, if it weren't something that they were volunteering, they would really have a negative reaction to that, to think, oh, well, now it's gone beyond what I'm choosing to do. Now it's going to what I'm I actually looking at. And uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would find that creepy if it weren't a volunteer a voluntary thing. So I agree with you entirely that that that's an important step for this to be a technology that people uh, embrace as opposed to reject. Yeah. And that's again we put hard viruses with the guardians of the end users privacy or when you can only read it if you're if you're allowing it. Right. So So what I want to ask you what your personal favorite implementation of eye tracking technology has been up to this point. Um, it's it's a very good question. Uh, it's also a very hard question because, as we have discussed, is knowing the intent of humans is so powerful. So you can you can draw up so many um, uh, different uh, example implementations. But if I if I if I take a few, um, we have in our business unit Toby Dynavoks, We have. So many users, so many mothers and fathers who come to us and say, hey, my my son or my daughter has for the first time ever communicated to me, mom, I love you, or has for the first time drawn a drawing on on, on anything, but this time on a, on a computer with, her, with his or her eyes. I mean, that, that goes beyond anything. When you get that type of really, really, 
kind of strong value because because a person who has previously not been able, been able to communicate can now communicate. I mean that that's kind of that's outside anything. Yeah, um, yeah, no, that's transformative. I mean that's yeah. that's the sort of story that is incredibly inspiring, and it does show that this technology has uh, a incredible. Uh, power and it can, and it not, not only does it have incredible power, it has incredible power to empower people who previously had very little chance of having that sort of human connection. And until you hear those stories, you don't even realize how incredibly valuable that can be and how much those of us who haven't had to experience that take it for granted. But then you start thinking about it and you realize this sort of connection that is possible due to technology like this. And yeah. you really, it, I mean, it really does open up your eyes. Uh, you know, didn't mean to go with that particular metaphor, but that it really, <laughs> it really does, does hammer home how, how incredibly impactful this sort of technology can be. The other, the other. If I take one more example, more from the consumer world, you know, uh, I don't think it's hard to trump that type of. But, sure. but if I take it from the consumer world, uh, if I think about a, a VR headset or or an AR or AR AR headset, it's what what is happening is we are actually seeing that we can take a three step interaction and make it into a two step interaction and take away one entire step into every single interaction. So. In a VR headset as of today, the method to interact with something is one, you look at it, two, you turn your head or you point your hand controller to it, three, you push a button to pick it up or you know whatever you want to do with it. So it's kind of one look, two, turn your head or, or move your hand controller to point, three, press a button. You know, there are variations, could be my voice as well, but there are, so that's a three-step process. Uh, with eye tracking, you reduce that to a two-step process, which is basically one, you look at an object, two, you press. That's fantastic. And it creates a, a deeper sense of immersion because you're no longer, again, you're removing another one of those layers that the, the person using it had to go through previously. Every yeah. time one of those layers gets removed, then you have this yeah. this deeper immersive sense that creates yeah. a more convincing experience overall. Yeah. And when you think about that, what when you think about what the entire touch revolution, what that really is, you know, you know, I mean, you're given a touch phone to you, you know, your first experience with the touch phone with it, with it, and, 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 you know, the, and the, what that revolution is, is like one, you look two, you touch. That is what you do in a touch phone. It's a two step in direction. One, two, just like it is in VR with eye tracking. It's one, two, press a button. While it's coming from the PC world where the interaction is one look, two drag with your mouse or your touchpad, three click. So the revolution you're going through with eye tracking is, is exactly the same in terms of taking one step away and just having it one look, two action, one look, two action. So it's, I would argue it's just as powerful as that touch revolution. And when you think, when you think about it further, why is this so much more intuitive? It is because that is how we have learned to interact, interact even since we were a kid. You know, when you as a kid wanted to learn when interact, to interact with something, you have something on the table in front of you. It's one look to pick up, to explore. You know, when you want to turn on your dishwasher, I mean, one look at the knob, two turn. 
when you want to shake somebody's hand, look at the, one look at the hand, two shake the hand. You know, it's it's a two step interaction. That is what you have learned as a kid to explore. One look, two pick up. And and we're replicating that, and that's why it feels so intuitive. And I can tell you, anybody that we demo a, a VR or a or AR application to, they kind of they get it instantly. Like, oh yeah, this is more intuitive because it's simple as that. We're just replicating what you do in the real world, which is which is kind of natural if you want to do virtual reality. It, it's it's supposedly pretty important to replicate your actions in the real world, right? Right. Yes. I mean, if it, if it doesn't, then it takes you out of that. You're aware that you are in an artificial experience. And, uh, and obviously the goal is to reduce that awareness as much as possible so that you can really have that, the experience that the developer intended when he or she started to design it. Uh, and, and ideally, at least for most VR experiences, that's to strip away all the rest of the awareness uh, in augmented reality, obviously it's meant to augment an experience in the real world. But even then you want to, you want to reduce the load on the user of having to think, Oh, well, if I want to accomplish goal X, I have to go through these steps in order to actually do that. Whereas in the real world, if you were looking at an actual physical uh, replica of what you were seeing in the augmented world, you wouldn't have to go through that because that's just not the way the real world world works. Imagine a imagine a imagine a fast paced VR game or AR game. It doesn't matter. I mean, you would be running down a pitch in a, in a in a football match, and you want to pass the ball to somebody who's running full speed in the other direction. And then you, how do you do that with the current controls in VR? I mean, you're running full speed your he- yourself, and then you should either point your head to 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 kind of to to point to the to the other to, to your teammate who's running in the other direction, and do that continuously to tell the computer where you want to tell the VR headset where you want to pass the ball. Or you should running full speed in one direction. You should point your ha- hand to tell the VR headset, "I want to pass the ball to this guy." That's super hard. I mean, that's just you know, it's just impossible. You can try to do it yourself in, in your in your room if you want, but or you, you imagine the interaction. You're running down, you know, in one direction. You look at the guy running in the other direction. You can do that. You can follow that person extremely easily with your eyes, and then you just press a button, then pause that guy. That's that's just so much easier, and it takes down this barrier, it takes away one step, and it will enable game developers to make VR games more immersive and also more fast-paced, because otherwise you need to kind of slow down the pace in order to make people hit the right person. And, and not only that, I would add that it adds in an element that you see in the real world all the time, which is misdirection, purposeful misdirection. If you're playing on a team and you want to pass to a teammate, you don't want to telegraph that to the other team. (laughs) So so being able to use your attention to direct uh, the ball in the, in the right direction without having to turn your head and make it obvious. Oh, well, he's about to pass to his teammate on his left. Then it makes it more challenging for the opposing team to anticipate what your move is. Yeah. Or more, I mean, more like personal connect, I mean, interaction. I mean, you're sitting around a table, you're talking to a set of people. Um, imagine you have two people in front of you now, and then you start talking to one of them. You would be looking at that person. Um, but you would be looking at that person with your eyes. You would not turn your forehead to that person. 
So the VR AR headset would not know that you're you, you want talking to person A. It may it, you may have your head still pointed at person B. So then the VR headset would it would the, the wrong person would nod or blink or or, or 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 smile at you when you when you smile back at them because they you don't know what you're what what you're interested in. You only know what you're interested in what you're interested in if you know where you're looking. Because your forehead is just an approximation of your interest, and it's always it's going to be wrong in in, in certain number of cases. Oh sure, yeah. So if you were in a uh, a game that requires interaction with uh, PC controlled characters, yeah. and, and you're trying desperately to uh, to align yourself with one character, and there's a yeah. secondary character there, and you accidentally yeah. swear fealty to the bad guy, suddenly yeah. the whole game yeah. has changed. Yeah. 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 Or it just feels less immersive because the the, the people you look at, they're stone-faced. They don't <laughs> smile when you smile at them because they don't understand you're looking at them because you didn't you didn't do you didn't turn your forehead to them to indicate that you actually want to speak to them, right. which and, is unnatural. You don't do that really well. And I could see this also just being useful in a, a virtual meeting space where you're just having a like just a not a game element at all, just a literally a meeting where you have multiple people uh, logging in through various devices, being able to see where anyone's gaze is is incredibly useful because if you're addressing questions to somebody, you don't have to... It's it's kind of like interacting with a personal digital assistant that's voice-activated today where uh, you, know, you, you use a typically a name that indicates this is the alert to listen in and then to respond. But it's not the way we humans tend to talk to one another. If I were having a conversation with you and I started every sentence with Oscar, what do you think about after about after about five <laughs> yeah, or six sentences, it. it feels weird. Yeah. <laughs> so you got it. You got it. Can I hire you? <laughs> no, but, no, but that's that's it. You know, can I take one more use case? Just absolutely. Please do. <laughs> Or another, I mean, just to take it in a different direction or tangent, it's um, it also can also po- affect the actual core rendering of the graphics. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, today in VR or in PC, I mean, um, uh, we're all trying to create beautiful games with with as high resolution as possible, but that takes a high toll on on the, on the GPU. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, the human eye is only perceiving. Uh, what you look at in high resolution, where you look at it, the rest is kind of blurry. Mm-hmm. So that means you can do something called foveated rendering. That is that you only render in high resolution in the area you look and in low resolution in the periphery. And then you look at a different point and then it switches very, very fast to render in high resolution where you look at that point and in low resolution in the periphery. As a user, you cannot notice because this is all happening too fast. You, you're not noticing that the entire world is rendered in low resolution in the periphery, but you save 30 to 50% on the GPU capacity. Excellent. So then that also means that you're not overheating your machine. It means that devices that have, uh, say, the latest and greatest in, in graphics hardware, that's going to remain relevant longer than it would be like the life cycle of these things is notoriously fairly short if you want to be on the cutting edge of capability. But if you're using a strategy such as this that reduces that load, then you've extended the life, the, the, the useful lifespan of those, uh, those, those components 
by quite a bit because you don't you're not maxing out as quickly as you would in the uh in the real world. I mean, I that was one of the reasons why back in the 90s gaming computers uh, got to, you know, first they became a thing and then they became a thing that I just could not keep up with. And uh, it was very frustrating for me to think that every six months my machine was out of date enough where if I went out and purchased a new game six months after I bought a machine or I bought a graphics card, uh, I could not run it at the settings I wanted to because it would be too strong, too, too big a strain on my components. I would have to actually upgrade my hardware. Uh, so if you're able to solve that through software where you're you're able to reduce that load, uh, to me that's phenomenal because uh, it, it takes me out of that masochistic yeah. <laughs> relationship you, you, I would have. Yeah, you can be also be a little bit less of a bullet sponge, right? So. Oh yes, that would no, also that'd be lovely. I mean, let's not dream too big here, Oscar. Let's <laughs> let's keep yeah. our expectations realistic. All right. No, but you can, you can use it obviously to keep your hardware longer or to reduce your cost of your hardware, or you can use it to get a better immersion by being able to get your computer to handle um, high resolution graphics, mm-hmm. or you can get your computer to, um, uh, to run at a higher uh, refresh rate or, or, or higher FPS. Mm-hmm. So you can use it you know, however you want, either to save cost or prolong your, prolong your lifetime or, or to... To, to, to run the game in a in, a, in, in, in high resolution and get more immersive. That's fantastic. Oscar, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. This has been a fascinating conversation. I very much appreciate your time. Right. My pleasure. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about eye tracking technology and where it's going. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. As Mr. Werner pointed out, the data we generate through our attention is valuable, and it also poses a clear threat to our privacy if it is handled poorly. Now, I appreciate that Toby's policy is to only use data with the permission of the user, because you can easily imagine scenarios which could be compromising if you did not realize your eye movements were being tracked. So, for example, let's say you're going in for a job interview for a big tech company and you're qualified and you are knowledgeable in your field, you are a hard worker and you really, really want this job. But you're also a bit nervous about going in and interviewing. Uh, That's to be expected. And because you're nervous, you know, you're looking around a lot. You don't really want to hold anyone's eye contact for too long because you don't want to come across as too intense or anything. So you're you know, you're, you're just trying to feel your way through this experience as best you can. And unbeknownst to you, but beknownst to us, the people meeting with you are also using a system with eye tracking technology to observe you throughout the interview process. And the system is analyzing you as you respond to questions and converse with others. It's watching your eye movements and tracking that against various behavior patterns and drawing some conclusions. And maybe... Some software is generating a report that assigns metrics to fuzzy categories such as assertiveness or honesty. And maybe even though you really are the best candidate for the job, the system tells the hiring manager that you're nothing more than a shifty Pete and they shouldn't hire you. Now, that kind of sounds silly the way I'm putting it, but it's certainly something that could potentially happen 
And the technology already exists. Really, it just means that you have to create the software, which largely would mean making sure that your software is at least on the surface dependent upon reasonable psychology, right? You can't just say, I think that if you look up, you are lying. That's one of those little bits of folk wisdom that actually isn't true. So you would want to make sure that your software is based off of science, or at least appears to be based off of science. I mean, if you're not being very ethical, you could sell your software package no matter what. But it's easy to imagine that sort of scenario actually happening, that a company be that uh, assertive or aggressive in its hiring strategies to incorporate that level of screening when they're looking at potential employees. But it's not really fair, and it certainly seems invasive. Now, that's a hypothetical. It's not something that I'm actually referring to that's happened in the real world, to my knowledge. But it's the sort of stuff we don't want to see. It places people at a disadvantage, and it could also be used to create opportunities for abuse in many ways, which again is why that policy of only collecting information with the express permission of the user is important. You wouldn't want to come back at somebody and say, hey, I noticed that you were spending an awful lot of time looking at this one person in the room. Uh, it makes us uncomfortable because it appears that you have some sort of attraction to or maybe animosity toward this person. All of that seems like it could go south in a hurry. And it could be reflective of something that is not actually real because while our eyes are an indicator of where our attention happens to be, it's not always the case that what our eyes are pointing at is what we're actually focusing on. It's most of the time that's the case, especially when we're being very active with our attention, but it's not always the case. So this is a complicated issue. I think eye-tracking tech has far too much potential to do great things for us to be too wary of it. I don't think we need to back off of it. I don't think we need to abandon it. I don't think we need to label it as irresponsible or dangerous technology. We just have to make sure we hold organizations, companies, researchers accountable for responsible implementations of the tech. But these applications really could transform our world, particularly for people who have difficulty interacting with others or with their environment if they don't have that kind of technology at their disposal. So like Mr. Werner said, a technology that helps someone communicate after it appeared that all such ability had been lost is an incredibly powerful story, and it's hard to think of something more impactful than that. On the research side... Scientists are using eye tracking to learn more about cognitive development. There's a researcher named Alex Woolard who is working on her PhD in maternal infant directed speech at the University of Newcastle and Hunter Medical Research Institute in New South Wales. And she's using eye tracking technology to study how babies develop cognitive skills. She's learning how babies recognize and solve problems. And I didn't even know babies could do that. I haven't seen Baby Boss, though, so maybe it's all explained in that movie. Anyway, the study involves babies watching animations on screens, and it tracks where their eyes go. So, for example, let's say you've got a cute cartoon bunny hopping around on the screen, and the baby notices the bunny, and the baby's eyes are tracking where the bunny is going on the screen, and then the cartoon bunny hops behind a cartoon bush. Now, 
At that point, does the baby's focus continue along the bunny's pathway to the other side of the bush, anticipating the bunny's reappearance? And if not, why not? Now, early results in the research project, and this project is scheduled to last for five years. It's a long-term project to make sure that any findings are things that, that can be backed up with replication. Some of the early research has suggested that babies who are less distractible when focusing on a subject tend to be better at problem solving later on, which makes sense intuitively. You would imagine that to be the case, but this approach could help parents detect potential challenges early on and address them and give their children the best chance of overcoming those challenges as they grow older. So you might see that certain cognitive development might be running a little bit behind average from you know, the mean. And you might say, well, what can we do to address that? Are there things we can do as parents to help encourage our child's cognitive development in these areas and thus give your kid the best chance for success? It's kind of cool, I think. And it gives a lot more information and power to parents, stuff that people didn't have at their disposal without tools like this eye tracking tech that can back up those observations. Now, another study sounds ominous upon first glance. I was reading headlines and this one jumped out at me and it made me pause. It was the National Institute of Health spending $429,220 on eye tracking technology to analyze the eye movements of Latino customers at grocery stores. That was essentially the headline, which made me say, what is going on here? That sounds Minority Report-esque. But upon further observation, further investigation, it's not nearly that scary. It's actually kind of interesting. In this case, this is a study at San Diego State University that has the goal of finding ways to fight obesity. And the system is meant to provide data about the decisions that overweight or obese people are making as they shop for groceries. And it's a, in an effort to get insight into what is causing them to make those decisions. Are there specific things in the grocery store environment that are triggering those decisions? Can adjustments to the environment help guide customers into making more healthy choices? And the reason the study is looking at the Latino population in particular is that according to the researchers, as a demographic, Latinos are disproportionately affected by obesity. They also shop more frequently than other populations do, and they tend to go shopping with children more frequently than other demographics do. So, the hope is that by using the information from this study, we can come up with strategies that help people make better choices and have a healthier life and also provide a healthier life for their children. In the consumer world, companies like Toyota are using eye tracking technology to measure how effective their showrooms are at drawing attention to the features that they want to communicate to potential buyers. There might be something on a new Toyota model that the company really wants people to pay attention to, and they use the eye-tracking technology to see if it's working. And if it's not working, can they adjust their approach to make it more attractive? And inside vehicles, we're seeing more eye-tracking technology both as a safety measure, in the case of systems that monitor a driver's wakefulness or attention, and as a user interface. There's a Canadian research team that's using eye-tracking technology to look at the potential for driver distractions. So it's monitoring a driver 
so that if the driver takes his or her attention away from the road, let's say they are checking the various instrumentation panels, or maybe they're looking at their phone, trying to read or respond to a text, the system, the car, would actually become aware of this. Maybe it would start to engage some driver assist features, maybe even taking over control of the car briefly. Or it might send an alert to the driver saying, hey, your attention is wandering away from the road. You really need to pay more mind to the task at hand. On the user interface side, Porsche recently revealed an electric car concept called the Mission E. I should really get Scott Benjamin in here to talk about this concept car. It's kind of neat. It's an electronic car. It's supposed to be a sports car that could compete with the Tesla sports car, electronic sports car. And these would include eye-tracking type control systems for the in-dashboard systems as well as the the entertainment systems, the various instrumentation panels, it would be able to detect what you're looking at and give you information based upon that. And I imagine we'll see even more of this technology built into self-driving vehicles in the future when the cars we get into become interactive environments that allow us to do all sorts of things we couldn't do as human drivers. And again, This is just scratching the surface. There are so many more potential applications, and I'm sure I'm going to visit this topic again in future episodes to explore some of them. If you can't tell, I'm really interested in this subject because it opens up new possibilities to interact with technology while simultaneously giving us the chance to learn more about ourselves, and I kind of dig that. Before I sign off, I have an exciting announcement to make. I have a new podcast launching. It's called Tech Stuff Daily. And as the name applies, it will be all about technology. Oh, and it's also going to publish every day. That's that's what the daily part means. Every day, Monday through Friday. And each episode will be between four and six minutes long give or take, and we'll explore a tech topic that's been rambling around in the news cycle. This is not replacing tech stuff. That show is still going to be publishing twice a week, as always. It's going to exist side by side, but now you'll get even more tech goodness by subscribing to Tech Stuff Daily. Now, in my next episode, I'll chat a bit more about using eye-tracking technology, specifically in the realm of esports, as well as a discussion about esports in general. I look forward to chatting with you guys about it, and if you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, please let me know. You can write me at techstuff at HowStuffWorks.com, or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The show's handle is TechStuffHSW. Remember, I record new episodes every Wednesday and Friday, and you can watch me record them live at twitch.tv slash techstuff. Just visit that URL. You'll find the schedule there, and I'll talk to you again really soon. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 